I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hacks dedicated Second World War Air Power podcast, Hedge Hopping, with me, Matt Bone. Today, I am delighted to welcome a fellow Canadian to the podcast, Mike Bechtold is an author, a historian, and a cartographer who specializes in the fields of military air power, the Canadian Army in Normandy and Northwest Europe, and the Canadian Corps in the Great War. His speciality, though, is in tactical air operations in both First and Second World Wars, and it's going to be the latter that we will be discussing today. He currently teaches history at Wilfrid Laurier University and the Schulich School of Business at York University. Mike, thanks for spending time with us. Thanks, Matt. I'm uh, really happy to be here. I have to say that History Hack has been one of my absolute delights during this whole uh, lockdown period. Uh, not much is much good has come out of this uh, period, but History Hack is, has been fantastic, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to be on your show today. We're delighted to have you, and thank you for that. The check is in the post. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to discuss today? So we will be discussing the Battle of Bardia because we're recording this on the 80th anniversary of the battle today. Um, but there's a little bit more to the story as well. So who are we going to be using as our entry into the battle? Yeah, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Bardia through the uh, the eyes of Raymond Collishaw, who was a uh, a great Canadian figure of the the First World War. And uh, if any Canadians, if anybody around the world knows about him, they know about him as a uh, a great war fighter ace. He was uh, very skilled. He had uh, sixty kills on the Western Front. He was second to uh, Billy Bishop, uh, another famous Canadian ace uh, in terms of the totals, and uh, had a very successful first. World War career, but uh, years ago when I was reading through his memoirs, he had a, a throwaway line that said that um, of all the things I've accomplished in my life, the things I'm most proud of are my performance during the Western Desert Campaign. And that really made me scratch my head because I didn't even know what the Western Desert Campaign was, let alone why Collishaw would be proud of it. But uh, he had a, a really interesting career after the the First World War, he stayed in the RAF, one of the, the few pilots who was invited to do that. He was sent off to South Russia, where he fought against the Bolsheviks. He was in the, the Middle East fighting um, against insurgents in Iraq and Persia. Um, he was one of the first um, uh, commanders of an air group on a Royal Navy aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean. 
And at the start of the Second World War, he found himself as uh, the senior operational RAF commander in the Western Desert in, in Egypt. So uh, was involved in the early battles against the Italians and then, and then the Germans and had a big role to play. And as I uh, started looking into his, his life and his career, I found that he had a really big role to play into developing the Allied system of close air support, of tactical air support that was used for the rest of the war. And uh, he was uh, somebody that was worth writing about. I, th I think that's, let's dig into that sort of birth of tactical air. He had a stellar career air to air, but how did he get down low, especially in that last hundred days in the Battle of Amiel? Yeah, so the, the, the genesis of air power in the First World War is a, a really interesting story. I mean, it started with the aircraft being used for reconnaissance and then... Um, as the, the aircraft started bumping into each other, they started fighting. And initially it was with hand grenades and pistols and some intrepid guys even took rifles up to try to shoot and uh, it didn't work very well. But uh, over time it developed into uh, the scout aircraft, what's known as a fighter today, where they had machine guns mounted on the front and its job was to go out and hunt other airplanes. So when we look at uh, the the air war in the first world war today everybody knows about the great aces uh, von richthofen uh, bishop kalashaw um manic those guys and uh, those are the stories that are exciting to tell but that was all really just a sideline um, air power in the first world war was really mostly about reconnaissance about uh, getting intelligence by flying over the enemy lines, taking pictures, finding out what the enemy is doing, and also our artillery spotting, uh, putting aircraft in the air to, to watch the fall of shot and, and direct the artillery. Those are the, the really important things that Air Power was doing. And the fighters, the scouts, um, were going up to prevent that from happening. But it all ties into this idea of... Um, uh, daring do in the sky of the the knights of the air of these great uh chivalrous stories of uh sort of days of yore and everything like that and and that was really only an outcome of what air power was really doing um later on in the war um they discovered that air power could be applied on the battlefield uh by bringing planes down to to do what they call trench strafing uh to drop bombs to uh do interdiction um, and so by 1918, we see that all the components of air power that we see in play today were being trialed in, in one form or another. Um, reconnaissance, um, strategic bombing, uh, airlift, uh, interdiction, all those things were trialed. And Kalashaw was one of the, the first practitioners of uh, ground strafing. He commanded uh, 203 Squadron, well, uh, number three Naval, which then became uh, 203 Squadron when the uh, Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval, Naval Air Service joined on the 1st of April, 1918. And uh, through the the German March offensives and then the, the great last hundred days campaign, one of the, the main tasks of his squadron was to do trench strafing to support the armies on the battlefield. So he figured out what worked and what didn't work. And uh, I have to say that pilots in Kalashaw in particular hated doing trench strafing. It was dangerous work. Um, he said uh, very clearly that uh, he felt in his um, environment when he was up high dogfighting because he knew that he could trust his skill and his aircraft and he mostly flew um, the SOP with Camel during this period and he thought it was just an absolute wonderful aircraft that did everything he wanted but he said when he got down low uh, down uh, 100 feet over the ground and, and was doing um, ground strafing he said that luck was more important than skill he said it didn't matter if you were an experienced pilot 
or a, a newbie on his first flight, you had just as much chance of getting shot down by ground fire or crashing into the ground or having some other unfortunate thing happen to you. And uh, it was just something they, they really didn't like. Um, on the uh, the first day of the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August, 1918, uh, the, the great advance by the, the Canadian and, and Australian Corps, um, Kalashaw was in the, hour, in the air for about 10 hours that day over the battlefield, and he said uh, almost all of it was uh, flying 100 feet or below, and, and uh, he crashed one plane during the course of the day, uh, got shot up on other cases, and uh, it was just a, a very dangerous thing. But he, through this experience, learned what worked and what didn't work during uh, close air support missions. That was sort of the birth of the, the all arms battle, they called it, wasn't it? It was all forms, the, the, the army, the artillery and the air forces working as closely together as possible to, to create the, the breakthroughs that hadn't happened for the previous four years. Yeah, for sure. And, and it, w- it was during this period that Kalashaw really realized that um, close air support of the type that the army wanted um, sort of using aircraft to impact um, where the soldiers are fighting wasn't very effective. You could do it in an emergency. It could have an immediate impact, but over the long term, it was um, unsustainable. The losses were too high. The casualties were too great and you couldn't do it. And what air power could really do was isolate the battlefield. So do interdiction, try to prevent troops from moving up to the front, try to hit bridges, hit uh, supply columns and, and things like that. And that's where the real value of, of close air support was. Let's move forward now to the Russian Civil War, which is the Allied involvement on the white side against the Bolsheviks, which is one of those things that people don't really like to talk about. So how did Kolishov find himself involved in that conflict? Yeah, like I said, Kolishov had been um, uh, appointed as one, one of the few um, RAF uh, pilots to remain in in the Royal Air Force after the end of the war. Uh, the vast majority of uh, pilots were demobilized. The, the British just didn't need that many pilots. But Kalashaw was identified as um, a, a very good commander. And that's something that is going to be important in our story. Um, so many pilots were very good pilots, but they turned out to be not very good commanders. And I'm going to uh, annoy some of my fellow Canadians by uh, this next statement. But uh, Billy Bishop is this great case of a, an exceptional pilot who was a terrible commander. Um, he just didn't have the, uh, the big picture, the, the ability to see the big picture. And so when he was put in uh, command of a squadron, he wasn't able to uh, set aside his own uh, hunting instincts and, and want to go and do things. So, I mean, the, the great story that is a comparison for me in that is there was at least one case where Billy Bishop was asked to take a new pilot up to show him the ropes and, and everything like that. And uh, Bishop took him up and was uh, taking him over lines and uh, somewhere off in the distance, he saw some German planes. So he went off and uh, worked to, to shoot them down. And while that happened, his uh, in, uh, the, the green pilot he was entrusted to was shot down and killed. That's uh, not very good. Um, the same token, and I, I don't know if this is true, but the stories told of Kalashaw say that uh, when he was introducing a new pilot to the lines, he would take them up and uh, would find some uh, two-seater artillery spotter aircraft, a relatively easy target, and he would uh, guide his his uh, 
uh, pilot in to, to do it. And then he'd fall back and let the guy start shooting at him. And while the, the green pilot was shooting at the two seater, he would come up below and fire into that two seater himself and shoot it down. And uh, then when they landed, he would give the, the new pilot credit for, for doing it as a way of building up his confidence and showing him that he could do it and, and everything like that. So to me, that's a, a really different uh, perspective on command. One is out for the, the individual glory, the other is in it for the betterment of the squadron. And, and that's something we see over and over again in, in Kaldashaw's career. So he was sent over to Russia in command. How did that work out for them? Um, it, it went really well for, for Kaldashaw in, in one respect. He was, a, um, he was a very good commander. He was used to working um, on his own, so he didn't need anybody looking over his shoulder to do it. And that's a good thing because uh, South Russia was a long way from, from anywhere. And he often didn't have anybody except his own, um, his own ideas to, to carry him through. Um, and, and in many ways, it was the wild west of, of battlefields. Um, the Bolsheviks were operating over a big area, the, the white Russians. Um, we like to think about an army being uh, unified and under one control, but the white Russians had different factions that had different ideas that were going in different places. So um, he had uh, command of 47 squadron and uh, it was really put into, was it two or three separate uh, flights that operated mostly independently. Um, it's kind of interesting that they were each assigned their own armored train and uh, the aircraft would be, um, the wings would be taken off and they'd be put on the train and they'd go off to wherever they would be. They would find uh, some convenient flat field and they would take the planes off and uh, have a sort of an ad hoc airfield in the middle of nowhere. They would continue living on the train and that was sort of how they operated. But um, uh, the stories there were, were kind of crazy. Uh, more than once, uh, Kalashan and his pilots were engaging Bolshevik cavalry, um, going in and strafing them. Um, he was uh, called on to, uh, to fight in well, what became Stalingrad on the Volga River. I forget what it was called at the time, Saritsyn or or mm. something like that. And uh, it was under siege by the Bolsheviks. And um, he was uh, using his aircraft to bomb their... Uh, craft in the rivers, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, one of the first uh, uses of uh, aerial bombing on on ships in, in that kind of an environment. And uh, Kalashaw also was one of these guys who had nine lives and always seemed to, to survive. And at one point he came down, uh, was really sick, and uh, he was evacuated uh, on a train back to uh, back behind the lines, but somewhere along the lines, the, the train broke down and he got particularly sick and he was taken off the train and uh, uh, apparently came into the care of a, a Russian nurse who didn't speak any English. And uh, Kalashaw was basically lost. Nobody knew where he was for uh, a, a couple of months. Um, he just disappeared. Uh, everybody thought he was dead, but this nurse uh, took him when he was delirious and and on the verge of death and nursed him back to health. And uh, finally, he popped up and said, oh, sorry, chaps, I uh, had a bit of sickness to get over, but here I am. I'm back again and, and all's good. Fighter pilots and nurses. They seem to always find themselves in the, in the same vicinity. After Russia, he stayed on in a very slimmed down service and it's during this period that the fleet air arm isn't in existence. So the RAF is still providing the Navy with air cover. He, um, he ends up in command of an air wing on an aircraft carrier, which you wouldn't really hear that for an RAF pilot these days. No, no, it was, um, it, it was a unique experience. Not 
totally unique, but a, uh, a formative experience for him because he spent uh, the better part of three years on board HMS Courageous um, in the Mediterranean, mostly. Um, part of that time, they were doing workups on really trying to figure out how to use naval aviation. Um, the Navy and the Air Force had very different concepts of, of air power. This was still the era of the, the big ship. The battleship was king. Um, fleet engagements were all about um, getting your ships in line and, and pummeling them with the, the big guns and everything like that. And um, the Navy really looked at aircraft as just a, uh, a new form of scout. So we can send these planes up, we can fly in where the enemy battle fleet is, and then we can maneuver to uh, uh, engage with our big guns. But uh, Kalashaw was sort of on the forefront of thinking of naval aviation in a very different light and being a strike force and being able to use bombs and especially torpedoes to go out and deal with the, uh, the enemy fleet units. And uh, it was something that was very, very... Um, uh, the Navy wasn't happy about this attitude. The Navy really didn't want the, the thunder to be taken from its big guns, but uh, slowly they, they realized that this was something that was going to happen and all that. Um, a, an interesting um, uh, event that took place while Kalashaw was on Courageous was uh, an outbreak of violence in, in the Middle East. And uh, Courageous was dispatched with a uh, uh, infantry regiment on board to go and, and deal with it. And uh, he was uh, ordered to use his aircraft in a uh, sort of quelling the, the civil disputes to do sort of that kind of air policing that the RAF became famous for. Um, and uh, he learned a lot about operating with the army during that period, about what aircraft could do. Um, there were cases when the army... Uh, requested him to do uh, strikes on a, a village and uh, he basically had to say no because we don't know who it is and they said uh, well we can see there's people running into the house and looting it and uh, they need to be um, dealt with and he had to say back to them well yes we can see that people are running into that burning house and taking things out but can you tell us if it's looters or if it's the owners trying to rescue their possessions and they kind of said uh well um well we, we're really not very sure and and his answer to that was well then we're not going kinetic we're not firing on these people unless we know what's going on so uh it was uh, one of the limitations of of things but by the time Kalashaw was in command in the in the Western Desert, he had done close air support. He'd worked closely with the Army. He'd worked closely with the Navy. Um, he'd spent um, uh, a, a number of months on the ground with a, an Army column in Persia that was um, going to deal with some uh, insurgents. And he was riding on a horse and calling in airstrikes for the uh, the column as they went through the uh, Iraqi mountains. And uh, so got a very different perspective of air power from the ground up. Um, and all this put him in really great stead so that when he was uh, commanding the RAF in the Western Desert, he knew what air power could do. He knew what the Navy needed and what their perspective was. He knew what the Army needed and what their perspective was. And it, it really made him uh, quite unique in the RAF in having personally experienced all these different uh, um, sides of, of the employment of air power, and uh, it all played into how he used air power in the desert. So by 1940, we have a quite interesting situation in the Western Desert. He really was the, the right man in the right place for what was about to happen. Yeah, very much so. He was um, the sort of the second in command out there. Um, 
Arthur Longmore was the overall commander of the RAF in the, the Western Desert in the Mediterranean at this period. But Kalashaw was his uh, senior commander in Egypt in the Western Desert and gave him a lot of uh, latitude into what he was going to do. And Kalashaw and Longmore got along really well because they're both ex-Royal uh, Naval Air Service types. Um, Longmore actually had his flying ticket before the First World War and was a, uh, a commander in the Royal Naval Air Service during the First World War and was uh, sort of reaching the end of his career in the Western Desert, but he was sort of the right man in the right place as well as, as Kalashaw. So I, I think that sort of the popular remembrance of the Western Desert really starts a couple of years later, uh, 1942, the, the, the major battles, the arrival of Montgomery. But if the situation in 1940 was just as dire as they'd find themselves in a, a little bit later. So what was going on in the Western Desert in 1940? And what was the situation that Kalashaw and his 202 group found themselves in? Yeah, I, th- I think you've hit on a really in- interesting point there. For a lot of uh, people, the uh, the Western Desert in, in 4041 just isn't worth talking about. Um, and it really starts with Operation Crusader in, in late 41, and then especially with uh, uh, El Alamein and and uh, chasing Rommel across the desert. And that sort of early period in uh, 40 and 41 fighting the Italians is kind of written off as, well, the Italians were crap. They weren't very good fighters. They just ran away. And uh, even though we beat them, it it really wasn't uh, anything to be proud of. So let's just forget about that and and deal with the, the really important stuff, which was fighting the Germans. But uh, I, I, I think that's really um, not fair. It's not fair to what the RAF and, and the British Army did in uh, Operation Compass. And it's really not fair to the Italians. They uh, certainly had their problems. Um, they uh, It's easy to come up with that view that they were uh, cowards or timid or didn't want to fight or uh, didn't want to uh, sacrifice for uh, Mussolini, but uh, that that's not at all fair. And uh, they had some problems, but they also had some really good equipment. They had some really good pilots, um, some really good soldiers that were getting stuff done. And the victory wasn't about Italian failure. It was about British dominance and uh, Kalashaw played a, a big role in that. So the, the war in the Western Desert started on the, the 10th of June, 1940. Um, up until then, there was no active fighting in uh, the desert, uh, but Mussolini wanted to, to get into the fight. He saw how things were going in uh, in France and in uh, the, the Battle of Britain, which was just on the horizon, and he wanted to sort of regain the glory of the, the Roman Empire, so he was all set to take advantage of the, the British as they uh, looked to be having the boot put to them by the Germans and wanted to capture Egypt, wanted the Suez Canal, wanted uh, East Africa for his his new Roman Empire. So he declared war on on the 10th of June. He ordered his forces into Egypt, and they advanced about 50 miles and then stopped uh, about sort of halfway to Alexandria and built a bunch of camps in the the desert. And uh, it's not really clear why they did this. Um, Their commander said that he wasn't strong enough to go any farther, um, which may or may not have been true. But Basically, he ceded uh, the advantage to the British at that point. Now, the Italians vastly outnumbered the British during this period, both in troops on the ground, um, in terms of Air Force numbers, uh, uh, pilots, everything like that. And they also had interior lines of communication. So if the Italians were wanting for anything, um, Italy and, and Rome were just across the Mediterranean. 
for the uh, the British to get anything there. They had to come down the Mediterranean and risk getting sunk or shot up by the Italians. And uh, later on, they uh, to get aircraft, they uh, they brought in this route across the the breadth of of Africa called the uh, Takarati route, where they would uh, land aircraft in crates on the uh, west coast of Africa, assemble them, and fly them all the way across Africa. Uh, and then up the Nile River Valley to get to Egypt, which was a safe way of doing it in terms of avoiding uh, enemy contact. But it was long. It was dangerous. There was a lot of uh, aircraft lost uh, during that route and stuff like that. But uh, Kalasha understood completely that he was at the end of a long uh, communications line that he had finite resources that if he lost aircraft they would be gone if he lost pilots he couldn't replace them and uh, but he also realized that if they were going to be effective they had to be aggressive um, so he had um, second class equipment sometimes third class equipment I mean we're not talking about uh, new spitfires and, and hurricanes like the British were flying in uh metropolitan England. We're talking about uh, Gloucester Gladiators, a, a biplane fighter. Uh, we're talking about uh, Bristol Bomb Bays, which is uh, an old biplane transport that they used as a bomber. Um, in the early days of the, the fighting in the Western Desert, <clears throat> they had exactly one uh, modern Hawker Hurricane um, at their disposal. And uh, Kalashaw realized that uh, he could fake the, the Italians by being aggressive. So uh, he used it um, offensively. He had some uh, Blenheim bombers, which had proven to be uh, very ineffective in the Battle of France and were getting shot out of the sky by uh, Messerschmitts. But uh, in the Western Desert, they were very effective both as bombers and uh, he would uh, he put four uh, machine guns on the front of them and turned the, the Blenheim into a fighter. And it was very effective against the Italians. So he would have a... Uh, a, a team of two Blenheim fighters and this single Hawker Hurricane, which was eventually dubbed uh, Collie's, uh, Collie's Battleship. And he would uh, fly it around. He would use different pilots. So it was in the air a lot. He would change the markings on it. So the Italians didn't know there was just one of them. And uh, it, it was very effective at putting the Italians on their back foot. They became defensive. Um, the one thing that Collishaw had learned over the, uh, the Western Front was that combat air patrols were probably the most ineffective use of air resources you could possibly have. Um, it took an enormous amount of aircraft to keep a, uh, an air umbrella over your troops um, because they had to be there flying around uh, drilling holes in the sky and, and not seeing anything most of the time. But that's exactly what the Italians were doing because their army was demanding fighter cover. They wanted to see these aircraft over top of them protecting them. And uh, Kalashaw took advantage of that. He would go around them. He would attack them when he wanted to. And it meant that these Italian fighters flying defensive umbrellas couldn't be used in offensive operations or doing reconnaissance or other things that could be effective. I've just looked it up because he did have, because this is literally just popped to mind. We've not prepped this one. Roald Dahl would have been one of his, one of his men in 80 squadron at that time, wouldn't he? Yeah, he absolutely was. There you go. Yep. So if, if you've ever read going solo, that's a little, little taste of, of what we're talking about now. The Western. Yeah. Because he was, he was flying gladiators, wasn't he? Mm, yes. Random thought that just popped to my head in, 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 in the middle of that. So as, as we get to the, the tail end of 1940, the focus is still very much on the channel. 
But we've got a developing situation on the Egypt-Libya border. What is going to be happening in the last few months of 1940 and the the first few months of 1941 that is going to be the focus of our our conversation? Yeah, so General Wavell, who was the the senior army commander in the Middle East, um, knew that an Italian attack was coming, um, but he also knew that... uh, uh, they could take the advantage. He had uh, under his command a, a really good uh, ground commander, uh, Richard O'Connor, who uh, commanded the uh, the British Army in Egypt and was very aggressive and was arguing that we need to take the initiative, we need to attack. So in uh, November and uh, into early December 1940, they made a plan to attack those Italian camps in in the, the Western Desert as a way of uh, taking back the initiative from the Italians. And the, the Italians had built these fortified camps. They were uh, big camps. They had a lot of men, a lot of tanks in them, wire, minefields all the way around them. And uh, it, in, in many ways, it was their Maginot line in the desert um, that they were just sitting in there waiting for the enemy to come to them. And uh, O'Connor looked at it and realized that um, fighting in the desert was very much like um, Uh, naval combat much more than fighting on ground in that you could go anywhere you wanted in the desert uh, as long as the terrain was flat and these uh, uh, defended camps which were eastward facing that had their biggest minefields in front of them and were defended all around but were weaker in the back it was very easy for him to maneuver his forces um, and attack them from the west which is what he did so they planned this offensive called Operation Compass that was to be a, a limited five-day offensive that was meant to reduce these uh, Italian camps. And um, it was enormously successful, way more successful than anybody had expected. They attacked the, uh, the southernmost camp um, first using um, uh, tanks from the, the 7th uh, Royal Tank Regiment and, uh, and British troops and uh, captured the first camp and it fell really easily. The, uh, the tanks the British had, I believe it was the Matilda, uh, were basically untouchable to the, the Italians. They had a uh, gun that could destroy any Italian tank and their armor was virtually impervious to any uh, Italian gun. And so they sort of had their way with the Italians and they reduced first one camp and then another camp. And um, in a matter of uh, days, they had totally destroyed the, uh, the Italian position captured tens of thousands of, of Italians and sent the rest fleeing back into uh, into Libya, into Cyrenaica. And uh, at that point, they had to make a decision. Uh, do we call it quits or do we sort of maintain this momentum when we've got the Italians on their heels? And uh, O'Connor was all for going forward. Uh, Collishaw said, let's do it. And, and Wavell came around and said, okay, we'll continue. So the uh, next objective was uh, Bardia, which was the first uh, big Italian town uh, across the Egyptian border. And uh, Wavell was very hesitant about attacking it because it was a really strongly fortified position. It was a, uh, a town that the Italians had identified as the uh, their frontline defensive position since 1939. And they'd spent an, an enormous amount of time and energy and and wealth fortifying it. They had a, an 18-mile perimeter that went around the port that had uh, minefields and barbed wire and concrete positions to, to protect it. It was backed by at least uh, one second fighting position. It had um, oodles of, of artillery protecting it. And it was a really tough nut to crack. And 
when uh, uh, Allied Intelligence was uh, giving them information about this, they thought there was about um, 10,000, sorry, 15,000 to 20,000 Italian troops that were manning it and about 100 guns. Well, as it turned out, uh, British intelligence was absolutely wrong on that. And it was something more like 40,000 uh, Italians defending it and 400 artillery pieces. Um, and against that, the, uh, the British had um, a newly arrived Australian Infantry Division, the 6th under uh, General McKay, or maybe it's Mackay, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and uh, the uh, 7th Armoured Division. And uh, that was it, uh, maybe 20,000 men all up. Um, and that's not the way you attack uh, heavily defended positions. You usually want a, uh, an abundance of uh, numbers. You want more men, three to one, four to one advantage, more artillery. And the British didn't have that. And Wavell knew the odds were about one to one. He didn't realize they were actually sort of one to two, which is not good. And uh, his his instinct was uh, he outlined the plan to... Uh, to uh, London and said, there's three options. One, we can uh, invest and um, uh, try to, to capture the, uh, the town. Um, two, we can bypass it. Or three, we can um, sort of leave the door open to uh, encourage them to retreat and, and uh, surrender or, or retreat to Brook. And uh, he said, uh, the third option is probably the best for us. We're not strong enough to take it. Um, if we bypass it, we'll risk um, exposing our lines of communication. And uh, the best thing is to do is to, uh, to encourage the Italians to, to leave of their own accord. So the uh, 7th Armored Division, their support group, had already cut the road between Bardia and Tobruk, and he ordered them out of there to sort of open that door. And uh, they made a demonstration um, to the southeast to sort of encourage them. Uh, Kalashaw used his aircraft to attack to say, maybe you chaps want to leave. But uh, the Italians were... Uh, firmly decided that they were staying, so they had to uh, reevaluate what they were going to do. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So the, the, the battle itself is quite interesting because we, we're going to be looking at all arms of, of British military strength in this. You've got Colashaw with the, the RAF. You've got the, the Royal Navy off the coast with quite a heavy amount of firepower um and then you have the army in the Aust with the australians joining in as as well so one, one of my little passions is always the navy in this period as well because it's it's in that transitional period and one of the ships at bardi is of course the famous hms barham isn't it 
which would sadly suffer a very terrible fate only a few months after this. So we're talking big gun battleships off the coast, an outnumbered air force and an outnumbered army going up against a mini Tobruk. Is that a, a fair sub- surmise? Yeah. And in fact, I would say the defenses in Bardia were way stronger than anything they had at Tobruk. Um, after Bardia was finally captured, the uh, the British would go on to capture Tobruk. And uh, it was a, an a, even easier task that they had there. But uh, no, Bardia was a, was a tough nut. And uh, there was nothing that said this was, was going to go. And uh, the Italians um, were well entrenched in there. And their opposition was going to be the uh, the 6th Australian Division in their very first fight. Um, they hadn't been engaged in the first part of uh, Operation Compass. The uh, 4th Italian, or sorry, 4th Indian Division had been uh, part of the British force under O'Connor and had been very effective, but they were pulled off and, and sent back to uh, India and the, the Australians replaced them. So this was going to be their first big fight. And Usually you don't want to uh, put green troops in a, a situation like this, but O'Connor had no other option. His uh, other troops were, were tired. They were, had been exhausted in uh, the first phase of Compass, and he had to use, use what he had. Um, but the Australians acquitted themselves way better than anybody could have ever expected. I mean, if you ask the Australians themselves, they'd say, of course, it's that Anzac spirit. Of course, we were going to be successful. Um, but I, I don't think that's fair. It's not fair to the the green men of the sixth division, and it's not fair to the the Italians. Um, and one thing that's always struck me, and I was really surprised when I started looking into the the Bardia battle, is that it's really looked at in most sources as a uh, infantry armor battle. That the success came from the the resolute uh, determination of the Australians and the the great support provided by the seventh Royal Tank Regiment. And uh, you only see air power and, and the Navy come in in a, in a tangential manner. The, um, the best two books that have been written on this are uh, by a, an Australian named uh, Craig Stockings. And he's written a, a really thick um, a monograph on, on Bardia, which is absolutely fantastic. He gets into all the details of the battle. And he does have one chapter on the, uh, the Navy and the Air Force. And he understands the role they played, but that's not part of his story um and then he subsequently wrote a, a second book on it that's part of the uh, australian army um uh historical series and it, it's kind of like a um uh osprey book in that it's um shorter it's really well is illustrated it's got lots of asides about uh equipment and commanders and it's just a, a really excellent book and uh i mean i know that's a book written for the australian army but nothing is in there at all about the uh, the navy story or or the air force story and that's that's unfortunate uh, craig's a, a good friend of mine so i'm not saying anything to you that i haven't already <laughs> said to him but uh the uh the, the fact of the matter is that um as brave and as effective as the australians are you can't understand this victory in terms of it being a one-dimensional infantry armor battle there had to be something more there and uh, as I looked at it, I realized that that answer was that this was um, a very effective joint operation. Uh, Kalashaw was using his relatively small force to its maximum effect and having a really big 
uh, impact on the way operations went. And the, uh, the Royal Navy, which was predominant in the Mediterranean at this phase, was using way more firepower than you would ever have expected on, on this place to uh, also batter the, uh, the Italians. So let, let's spend the next few minutes and talk about what, what the Air Force and, and the Army and the, the Navy were doing, because it's really quite an interesting story. Um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, the Air Force is not at its best when it's supporting the Army on the battlefield. Um, and this became really clear later in the war, especially in Normandy, where the Army has a very difficult time hitting the kinds of targets that the Army wants. So the Army wants the, uh, the Air Force to hit uh, gun positions, uh, troop concentrations, things like that. And those are really difficult targets to find. They're even more difficult targets to hit. And they're exceedingly difficult targets um, in terms of the attrition of, of the friendly air forces. They're very costly in attacking them. The air force is much more effective when it's doing uh, attacks against the lines of communications, when it's um, cutting off the battlefield, where it's preventing the movement of reinforcements and supplies and preventing the enemy air force from coming into the battle. And that's exactly what uh, Kalashaw had his squadrons doing at this point. They weren't, for the most part, attacking targets in the Bardia perimeter. They were attacking uh, Tobruk, uh, Benina, um, uh, other Italian airfields and bases to the west to prevent uh, the movement of Italian troops to reinforce, to prevent uh, supplies from coming in, to uh, especially keep the uh, Rigia Aeronautica out of the battle, the Italian Air Force. Um, and, and doing that. And they're also working with the Navy very closely because the biggest threat to the Navy are uh, airstrikes from the, uh, the Italian aircraft. So the, uh, whenever the Royal Navy sorted out to, uh, to make attacks on, on Bardia or earlier in the desert campaign, they were making attacks on Solemn and, and uh, other positions along the coast. Uh, Kalashaw would send his squadrons out to do um, what he called fumigation raids, which is just an absolutely delightful title. Uh, fumigation is about keeping the pests away, getting the, the insects uh, killed. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was attacking airfields to keep the pests down, to keep the Italians from uh, sending their aircraft after the, the Royal Navy. And uh, it shows really how closely the Air Force and the, the Navy were cooperating during this period. And they, the, the Air Force was quite outnumbered. I made a note from, from your book that Kolesha's force had 48 fighters and 116 bombers against 191 Italian fighters and 140 bombers. So it's, again, it's, you know, in, in total, it's, it's two to one. But just on that fighters, you know, it's a quarter. He's only got a quarter of the force that he's up against. So keeping them out of the fight would have been vital. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I said, Kalashaw was, was criticized um, afterwards. And, and in fact, during the campaign as being too aggressive. Um, Arthur Tedder, who was the uh, deputy to um, uh, Longmore after he arrived about the same time as Operation Compass was getting started, he uh, had said to Longmore that Kalashaw was being too aggressive and he was wasting his aircraft um, in frivolous attacks and things like that. And uh, Longmore looked at it and realized that there's sort of a, a sharp knife's edge between being aggressive and being wasteful. And Kalashaw was always erring on the side of being aggressive, but not wasteful. Um, and he, he understood 
completely the the danger of, of losing aircraft and and things but he also understood that the italians had to be challenged they had to be um uh, push to keep them defensive because as long as the Italians were being defensive, they couldn't use their their greater strength against the British, which would have been uh, fatal in a, in a lot of ways. So Kalashaw's uh, the quality of his aircraft were improving by this point in the the campaign, uh, whereas earlier his main fighters would have been Gloucester Gladiators with just that single uh, Hurricane. By the time of Operation Compass, he had two full squadrons of, of Hurricanes, and that offered him a, a qualitative qualitative advantage over the uh, the Italians who were still mostly flying the the CR-42s, which was a, a biplane that was roughly uh, equivalent to uh, the Gloucester Gladiator. Um, so Kalashaw had an advantage in having that uh, Hawker Hurricane available. And uh, the Italians also, not only did they favor those defensive operations, they were also, um, uh, I don't know how to describe it without sounding negative about them, because I'm not trying to be, um, they valued uh, flash over substance. They would much rather have a, a long dogfight that was throwing aircraft all over the skies and sort of a, uh, gladiator kind of contest rather than uh, sneaking up and shooting the plane down before you knew they were there kind of thing. Like that was kind of the the mindset they had. And, and Kolosha took advantage of that because he realized that we're not going to get in these long dog fights with these uh, Italians. That's not to our advantage. We're going to sneak up and destroy them as, as quickly as possible. Or even better, we're going to blow up or shoot up their planes on their airfields before they can even get into the air and and stop them that way. It's the prag pragmatism of a commander who has has done it all, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, and and so that's the the Air Force side of it. Um, Kalashaw is also um, being very um, uh, impactful in the battle by providing aerial reconnaissance. The entire battlefield is is mapped out with air reconnaissance photos, and these prove absolutely key because they allow the the planners to find out the weak spots in the uh, the enemy defenses and, and plan their attacks. So rather than attacking from the, the southeast where the Italians are expecting the, the attack, which is sort of closest to the Egyptian border, they realize that if they go around most of the perimeter and, and attack in the, the northwest corner, um, not only are the defenses somewhat weaker there, they also found a spot that was sort of on the border between uh, two uh, separate defending formations and they could sort of create uh, chaos by attacking on that scene and it ended up being very successful in fact the uh, uh, initial Australian attack was in many ways a, a perfect um, form of the German blitzkrieg um, have all your your weight go on to a very small point break through the enemy defenses and then spread out behind and and roll up the enemy defenses and that's exactly what they did 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 intelligence ever figure out that there was twice as many Italians defending Bardia um, or, or was that just a surprise as the battle went on? Yeah, I don't think, uh, I never saw anything that they really understood that was the case as the battle was proceeding. And I mean, it, it was over in 72 hours. Um, I think when they first realized it was really when all the prisoners started being collected and uh, there was some 35,000 plus uh, Italians that were captured in this battle, which is just, ridiculous i posted some photos earlier that just show these um uh, fields of, of prisoners uh, one of my favorite quotes from the period came from a, a british army officer um in the the first phase of operation compass who was asked by headquarters to report on how many prisoners they'd captured and and his response was about seven acres 
Well, what what I'll do is when we put this um, episode out live, I'll tag in your thread because it's a, a superb thread on the battle if people want to have a look at those photographs as well. Sure. Um, let's let's talk about the Navy for a minute because the I'm going to say the poor Italians because they're sat in a catchment being fired upon by 15-inch guns, um, which just saying that it doesn't sound very nice. No, no. And, uh, the, the British certainly use their naval advantage to, uh, to their, their great advantage in this battle. Um, they had a, a formation called the, uh, the inshore squadron, which was, um, centered on the HMS terror, which was a, a, a monitor. It was a really kind of odd looking ship that it was quite small, but it had this enormous turret with two 15 inch guns in it. And it was really just a, a mobile gun platform. And uh, then it had a, a number of uh, gunboats with uh, six or eight inch guns and they would come in and, and pummel. But uh, the real ace they had up their sleeve was the, uh, the battleships of the, uh, the Royal Navy, the, the war spite. And uh, I think there was two others that were part of this and they would come and, and sit off the coast and fire their 15 inch shells at uh, Bardi which was a sort of a two-part town there was an upper town on on the cliffs overlooking the port and then a lower town and uh just i i can't imagine what it would be like um being underneath the the firepower of these 15 inch shells i mean a 15 inch shell is sort of the size of a, a volkswagen it's like just absolutely enormous and a huge explosion leaving these massive craters um and it, it just must have if it didn't kill you it would 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 drive you insane yeah, it, you know, it was a Byron was a survivor of Jutland, so that's that's the size of firepower that you're firing in. I, always makes me smile when I see terror pop up. Is it always makes me think of Franklin because it's an Erebus class yes. monitor named HMS Terror. And if you're Canadian, you immediately know what we're talking about. And if you don't know what you're talking about, please read up on Franklin because it's fascinating. And it's been found. It has, yes. Um, that's another podcast for another time. So, as you said, it's a 72-hour battle with colossal losses to the Italians, not so much in, in casualty, but in in the amount of troops surrendering. What happens as towards the end of that 72 hours? You've got um, the Italians requesting um, requesting more support as they start realizing what is actually going on. Yeah, the, uh, the Italian commander was a guy named uh, General Bergenzoli. Uh, who was nicknamed Electric Whiskers um, because he had this great big mane of of hair on his face. And he was a really respected uh, Italian general, but he was also manipulated by Mussolini and kind of uh, putting his own uh, character at stake in the, the defense of Bardia. Um, by all rights, he probably should have uh, taken Wavell's inv uh, invitation and uh, given up Bardia and moved on to... Uh, um, to Brook and, and really had a very strong garrison there, but he didn't and he stayed and he fought and uh, he lost. But from his perspective, he thought he had a really solid uh, defensive position. He had uh, concrete positions, uh, fighting positions where there'd be an anti-tank gun in concrete surrounded by uh, uh, concrete pillboxes and, and machine gun posts and lots of wire and lots of minefields. And and uh, it seemed like there was no chance that they could be weeded out. But Italian morale was, was suspect. I mean, they just had that uh, big loss from Operation Compass, very unexpected, and that had to uh, play into their psyche. And uh, the troops that were under Bergenzoli's command weren't all Italian. Um, I don't know the breakdown, but there was a substantial number of uh, Libyan troops, uh, which are sort of local um, 
uh, North African militia that are under his command. And some of them were, were quite good, but uh, the overall quality of them was probably not up to the, the quality of the average uh, uh, Italian soldier. I think I read in your book that there was a, a request almost in the clear for every Italian aircraft in the air, in the area to come and help, wasn't there? Yeah. And, and I mean, the Italians tried to, uh, to impact the, the battle using the air force, but for the most part, they couldn't get there. Um, their uh, first instinct was to attack the Royal Navy off the, uh, the coast, which was a good idea, but it really didn't get at the core of, of what their problem was. And it kind of wasted any effort that they had. And uh, in the end, most of their aircraft doing that were either shot down or, or turned back and they didn't have any impact on the Navy ships. Um, they did have one success on the, uh, the 3rd of uh, January when they attacked the headquarters of the 16th Infantry Brigade. Uh, the Australian 16th Infantry Brigade and and killed about six guys and and impacted their effectiveness for a while, but that was really the exception rather than the rule. And the uh, the Italian accounts afterwards are are really quite uh, remarkable. They said that uh, going into this battle, we completely expected to be attacked by the uh, the Italian Air Force. We uh, expected to see uh, fighters over us all the time and to, to be cowering because of it but they really weren't there. And for that, we can thank the RAF. And it was a, a big part of their story. So that's really the seeds of the tactical air power that we would come to know in, in later campaigns. It's it's moving that interdiction much further behind the lines to make sure that the support isn't there in the first place, not trying to counter that support while the, the, the troops on the ground are fighting that battle. Yeah, I, I, I find this as a really great missed opportunity um, for the Allied war effort because Bergia really should have been studied as um, a case study of how we do these kind of things, how we employ the Army in cooperation with the Air Force, in cooperation with the Navy, and, and what each one's role is and how it works and why it works. But I think so much of it was character-driven rather than doctrine-driven. Um, Collishaw got along really well with O'Connor and they, uh, they teamed up. They had their um, headquarters co-located, which is something that is always credited as a innovation of Conningham later in the war. But uh, O'Connor and, and Collishaw were doing it at, at this point in the war. And they just, they understood what each one needed and what each one could do. And they, they got on with their jobs. Um, later on, uh, Collishaw was gone, O'Connor was gone, and new people came in, and they didn't quite get it in the same way. And uh, I would say one of the, the big problems with this was Tedder at this point in the war. And um, Tedder, I'm, I'm probably going to get some flack for this because uh, Tedder, for goes, Tedder goes on to become one of the great heroes of the, the Royal Air Force. Um, Air Chief Marshal commands the, uh, the RAF during Operation Overlord in the uh, Northwest Europe campaign and becomes one of the, the RAF's exceptional leaders in that period. But for me, his conduct of operations in 1940 and 41 is solely lacking. He doesn't quite get it. He is trying to figure things out and he doesn't intuitively understand air power in the way that Kalashaw does during this point. So later on, I guess it's June 1941. This is after the uh, the Germans have come into the war. They've pushed the, uh, the the British back out of Libya. They're threatening Egypt again and uh, the British come up with a, a new plan, uh, Operation Battleaxe to uh, uh, relieve Tobruk, which has been invested by the Germans and, and try to push the Germans out of uh, Cyrenaica. And it's, a, it's an operation that comes in the aftermath of Greece and Crete. 
um, which have drained off RAF resources um, in the aftermath of Operation Compass. And uh, the RAF doesn't come off very well in those operations, partly because they're asked to do the kind of things that the Army doesn't want them doing and can't see them doing. So the, uh, the average British soldier and the British commanders in, in Greece and, and uh, Crete see the uh, German Stukas coming down and attacking them. And they're like, where's the RAF? Why aren't they defending us? And the RAF gets uh, uh, some interesting nicknames in this uh, phase. Instead of Royal Air Force, it's Royal Absent Force or uh, my favorite, which is rare as fairies. Um, but uh, the army really doesn't like the, uh, the RAF at this period. And so in Battle Axe, which occurs after um, the evacuation of Crete, Tedder listens to the army and says, who, who want to see the RAF? They want to see the RAF doing combat air patrols over their frontline troops. The exact thing that got the Italians into so much trouble earlier in the campaign is now what Tedder is ordering Kalashaw to do. And Kalashaw says, but sir, this is not the way to do it. We can be aggressive. We can do what we did before. And and he says, no, we have to allow the uh, the army to, to feel we're doing our job. So he reined in Kalashaw and Battleaxe in the first uh, two days of uh, Battleaxe were an absolute and complete failure because the, R the RAF couldn't do anything to help the battle. And in one of the, the key engagements on the second day, the Germans were able to move about the battlefield without any fear of, of being interdicted. And uh, it was the, the difference in the battle. On the third day, Tedder finally began to realize that um, something was wrong with his employment of the Air Force. Part of it was uh, Churchill, who was closely watching the battle, saying, why isn't the RAF having an impact? And uh, on the third day, Tedder released Kalashaw to do what he wanted, and it made a big difference. It was probably the difference between uh, the British being able to extricate their forces and get away cleanly from the operation or being completely encircled and, and destroyed in detail by the Germans. And that's... Uh, that's Kolesha's doing. It wasn't long after Battle Axe before um, Ted rang the changes and his right-hand man would, would, would come in and uh, they'd take the lessons learned in the desert and, and build on them. For yeah, Tedder, Tedder fired Kolesha, um about a month after Battle Axe concluded at the end of uh, the summer of 1941 and uh, brought in uh, Arthur Conningham, who uh, was his own guy. And uh, Conningham... And Tedder and Montgomery would go on to sort of create or, or be um, credited with creating that system of allied air support that was used um, for the rest of the war in Sicily and Italy, in Normandy and, and Northwest Europe. And uh, Conningham in particular was credited as the, uh, the man who came up with this system, who, who created the way that uh, the air forces would operate and the kind of missions they would fly and, and everything like that. And uh, it, it, it's not, quite the case. Um, Conningham really came in and he had this system that was about 75% complete, maybe even more, and uh, had been created by Kalashaw uh, primarily. And he took it and he tweaked it and he, he made some changes that weren't necessarily doctrinal based, but were more based on abundance. Um, he was able to do things with the Desert Air Force that Kalashaw could only have dreamed of because he now had more planes, more fighters, more bombers, more transport, more uh, fitters and armorers and mechanics and things like that. So he was able to sort of um, uh, finish the souffle, so to say, and, and took credit for the whole thing. Uh, meanwhile, Tedder basically spent the rest of his life um, slandering Kalashaw and, and writing him off and, and everything like that. And uh, I'd, I'd always thought for a long time, because 
when Tedder showed up in the Middle East in, in December 1940, it was clear right from the start that he didn't like Kalashan and wanted to get rid of him. And I'm, I'm quite sure that there was some something that happened um, in the interwar period that they crossed paths and uh, Kalashaw was, was, was loud. He was brash. He was the fighter pilot persona. He liked his drink. He was the life of the mess and everything like that. And, and Tedder was more the, the quiet bookish sort who was more reserved and um, sort of that uh, upper class uh, British uh, type. And I, I'm sure there was some incident in a mess where Kalashaw had had a few drinks and Tedder, uh, crossed him and Tedder never forgot that. Um, but I've never been able to, to track that down. But in the aftermath of, of Kalashaw's command in the Western desert, I, I really think, and this is something that I've sort of just been thinking through lately, that uh, Kalashaw was the epitome of everything that Tedder had done wrong in those early years. So Tedder's way of dealing with it was to bury Kalashaw. He fired him, he got him out of the desert. And after the war, when he was writing his, uh, his memoirs, which are very aptly titled With Prejudice, um, he made sure that uh, Kalashaw came off as, uh, as he called it, the, um, the village slogger in uh, village cricket uh, when he wasn't right for the sort of the, the real game of cricket and uh, everything like that. So made it clear that Kalashaw wasn't operating at, at a high level when really he was, and Tedder was the one that had the problem. So I think that was his way of, of covering his, his early mistakes and in his career. I think that's a, a good way of putting it. It's a definite culture clash, the boy from Nanaimo, BC, and the, the, the lad who went to, to Whitgift School, Croydon, if, if you're listening, um, and Cambridge. It's, it's, you can't get two chalk and cheese upbringings than British Columbia in the, in the early 1900s and South London. Mind you, South London's a pretty fierce, fierce training ground for everyone, as I well know. <laughs> so, Colashaw, what what happened in his later life? Because he he didn't he, he didn't stay in the RAF for the the duration of the war, did he? He he was retired. Yeah, he possible. was very clear when he said in his memoirs, "I was retired." Um, and it, it, it's very odd. I mean, in 19, he he came back from the Western Desert, um, and he was given some commands in. Um, more senior staff jobs in uh, fighter command in London. And then he was given command of 14 group up in Scotland for about a year. Um, but that was at a point after the, the conclusion of the battle of Britain. And it was really sort of a, a backwater training area and he wasn't really doing much. Um, he had some health problems during this period. It's clear he uh, was in a hospital um, for, I'm not even sure what, because the records don't give me detail on that. And in 1943, he was retired um, in the middle of the war, which seems very odd for somebody that was uh, an, a very effective commander, uh, was not over the hill. He wasn't too old. It wasn't like Dowding, who sort of was on the verge of retiring before the war, but was, was kept on and, and uh, then kind of had to retire because he was sort of aging out of the service. Um, he wasn't the oldest. He wasn't anywhere near the oldest um, and uh, he took on a job with uh, civil air defense um, in the UK for the rest of the war. Um, after the war, he returned to uh, Canada with his, his wife and his, his two daughters and uh, kind of put the Air Force behind him and engaged in a, a career as a, a mining executive, um, exploring uh, mining tracks in uh, the British interior and on Vancouver Island 
uh, very much like his father had. And he also became a um, sort of a self-starter historian. Um, he wrote oodles of, of stuff. He was very interested in uh, uh, collecting rosters of fighter pilots from the First World War. He was one of the first people trying to figure out who shot down the Red Baron and trying to sort of tally the various accounts of that. Um, he compiled lists of all the, the great aces from all the nations of the First World War and stuff like that, and was a, an inveterate letter writer uh, talking to just about anybody who was interested uh, about his First World War career. Um, remarkably, the stuff in his, his um, papers is much less on his Western Desert campaign. He didn't talk about that near as much. Um, he never said a bad word about Tedder. Um, which to me is is very telling about his character and and uh, who he was as a, a man. Um, but he uh, he lived a, a long and healthy life. He uh, finally passed away in in 1976, um, which is uh, outlasting most of his contemporaries. A truly remarkable character. I can highly recommend your book, which I've I am ashamed to say I've read the first half of that we've we've discussed what's it called where can you find yeah, it yeah it's called um flying to victory raymond Collishaw and the western desert campaign 1940 to 1941 it's published by uh oklahoma university press and you can find it on amazon or uh you can get a, an ebook from your your favorite vendor um it, it it is an air force history but it is also a history of the western desert campaign up until and and through battle axe and uh I think uh, in some ways it's uh, as important account of, of battle axes has been written. So uh, I highly commend you to, to read it. I, sh I shall finish it. I promise. As everyone's going to want to follow you on, on the, on the social medias, how can they find you on that? Yeah. Uh, Twitter is, is the best place. Um, my uh, handle is Mike underscore Bechtold. Um, and you can find that on the, uh, the Twitter feed of, of history hack and everything like that. So I don't have to spell it for you, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, you'll get lots of uh, opinions on uh, uh, the COVID mess we're in and about uh, the Canadians in the second world war and, and air power and, and stuff like that. So yeah, please do come and follow me and uh, let's have a chat. Thank you so much, Mike. That was really good fun. Um, our next history hack hedge hopping will be out in a month's time. It will be Allison engine Mustangs with Matt Willis. So we will be looking at the legend before she became a legend. Thank you very much for listening. In 2020, when the boss ladies, Alex and Alina started history hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much and until the next time. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.